Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we have a special guest. I'm speaking to author Amy Stewart who joins us from Portland, Oregon. Amy is an old friend of Abe Books. You're the co-owner of Eureka Books, a wonderful bookstore in Northern California, but your main occupation is writing. You started in non-fiction and carved a green niche for yourself by writing books that took an interesting perspective on nature and gardening. You wrote about earthworms, the flower industry, poisonous plants, diabolical insects, and the role of plants in alcoholic drinks. And then in 2015, you made a switch to a different bookshelf, so to say. Girl Waits with Gun was your fiction debut. It's historical fiction based upon real events and actual people, and it tells the story of Constance Cop, one of America's first female deputy sheriffs. And now, here we are in 2018, and you'll soon be releasing your fourth book in the Cop Sisters series, Miss Cop Won't Quit. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So, it appears that uh, historical crime fiction is now a big part of your life. Yeah, I, I'm kind of living in the 1910s right now. Which is, well, there was a lot going on during that period. Um, you don't really touch on things like the, uh, the First World War, but if you think of things like uh, women's rights and women's suffrage, all of that stuff was happening in, in that decade. Right, yeah. I start this story in 1914, and so the war is kind of creeping around the edges of my characters' lives, but, you know, as you know, the United States was so late getting into the war. It was 1917 before we even signed on, and we didn't, we weren't really in combat till 1918. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of sidling up to to world events in this book, but definitely just what was happening in the country at that time is so interesting. I mean, there was a big wave of anti-immigration sentiment happening. Women were fighting for their rights, uh, so much going on. So Constance Cop was a real person. H how did you first find out about her? You know, I was working on um, The Drunken Botanist, which was my previous nonfiction book. It's a book about all the plants that we turn into alcohol. And I was writing about um, a gin smuggler named Henry Kaufman. And I just wanted to know if Henry Kaufman had done anything else. So I went to the New York Times archives. I started there. And um, there, it turns out, were a lot of people in 19... 10s named Henry Kaufman getting into all kinds of trouble and one of them was a guy who ran his automobile into the cop sisters buggy and destroyed their buggy and they got into a big dispute over the damages that led to these three sisters being harassed for over a year uh, and it was a fascinating story but you know that happens all the time when you're doing research right you go looking for one thing you find something else and you kind of got to set that aside and keep focused but in this case I got really sidetracked um, tracking down what happened next to the cop sisters because the eldest Constance cop um, was hired as a deputy sheriff as a result of her work on this case, which was very unusual for women at the time. And then the other two sisters had interesting stories as well. So right away I could see the possibilities of this, like this would make an amazing novel. And it's not just one novel, it's several because this story really goes on. So 
it was that one little accident and it really did kind of change my life because you're right, here I am all these years later and I'm still at it. So Constance was a pioneer, but yeah. did you have any knowledge about her character, her personality, which is uh, an essential part of your books? Right, well, um, fortunately there was a lot of newspaper coverage, uh, including some long in-depth profiles of her with her speaking in her own words. So I do have direct quotes of hers, although it's become really clear to me that there was quite a lot of fabricating of, of quotations and, and a lot of mistakes with simple facts in the newspapers a hundred years ago. And I just know that because I can compare five articles about the same events and look at the discrepancies. So I'm not sure how much I can rely on the, the quotes I have from her, but it does give me a little bit of a sense of her personality. She was very forthright. She didn't want to get married. She didn't want to have kids. She wanted a career. Um, she was pretty ambitious. And I, I was also able to track down some family members who, um, if they didn't remember Constance herself, at least could tell me what stories had been passed down through the family. So like one thing about Constance is that she was in real life about six feet tall, weighed 180 pounds, which in the 1910s, she would have towered over most men. Like the average height of a man was 5'7", five, 5'8", five, going into World War I. So she was a very large woman and very intimidating. Uh, one of the family members says that his mother, who was a little girl at the time, remembers her Aunt Constance and, and was just terrified of her as a little girl. <laughs> so that gives me some sense of what she must have been like. In the uh, opening few pages of Miss Cop Won't Quit, she chases down someone who has um, stolen something from a, a butcher, I think. Uh, did that really happen? Did she hitch up her skirts and chase after criminals? She, she did hitch up her skirts and chase after criminals. That particular chase is uh, fiction. But uh, I have lots of newspaper accounts of her going after criminals on the street. And this is what made her so unusual. There were women starting to move into law enforcement in the 1910s, but mostly they were working as social workers. You know, they were sort of there to look after the women and children who came through the jails. But they didn't have a gun and a badge and arrest authority. And in fact, that seems to really be the dividing line. Like, who was the first woman in law enforcement to have arrest authority is a, is a real question. Um, but Constance did, and um, she was even paid the same as male deputies. So that's why I think she's in the newspaper so much, is that she was doing work that was unusual, even as compared to other women in law enforcement uh, at that time. So what I, I notice about the 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 books is you, you obviously you're setting up the plot but the obstacles that Constance faces is the most frequent one is simply she's a woman and mm -hmm. all of the men around her in positions of authority do not treat her with respect or as an equal or uh, I'd also include newspaper men I guess also in that list but she's constantly facing obstacles of people who do not have belief or faith or try to undermine her um, I, I guess you are highly motivated by the history of women's rights. Right. Yeah, you know, what? so what's interesting to me about her is, is just that, that she was, you know, she was very much a pioneer. She was very much um, doing a man's job uh, at, a, at a time when that 
was very difficult for her. You know, we didn't have the vote in the 1910s, so women were not citizens. We did not have full full citizenship rights. Um, and so in that way, you know, I was actually really inspired by Walter Mosley's um, Easy Rollins novels. I don't know if you've read any of those, but he's... Oh, well, Easy Rollins is, um, is a sort of a amateurish, semi-professional private detective living in South Central Los Angeles, um, and it's kind of the late 1940s into the 50s, into the 60s. And so as much as those books are about him solving a case, you know, he's got to track down a missing girl or whatever, really what it's about is what it means to live as a black man coming right out of World War II in Southern California at this particular moment in time. And that's what I love about those novels is that it's really him sort of navigating his own community and navigating the the white world and dealing with white police officers. And and, uh, I just find that so fascinating. And I was really inspired by that. And how can I sort of tell that story more than just um, like a traditional whodunit? You know, these are never really about who who committed the murder or who stole the the jewels or whatever. It's much more just about these three sisters and how do they navigate even being in the world as independent women? Because, you know, women weren't even really supposed to live by themselves. They were expected to live with a husband or parents or a, a brother or someone, but not just to be off by themselves supporting themselves. It was It's shocking that that was only 100 years ago, but that's how it was. Yeah, so I think, the, did the U.S. give voting rights to women was it 1920 i think it was. that's right yeah i mean yeah. it took a little while because the states had to vote so it, it happened earlier in some places than others in fact we had our first woman in congress um before women had the right to vote because uh montana early on gave women the vote really just hoping that more women would want to move out west <laughs> because there was a there was a real shortage of women so oddly enough states like montana and wyoming were very early with women's rights just trying to do anything they could to attract females to the area <laughs> so jeanette rankin is the first woman to ever serve in the house and and right. she was there to actually the first vote she cast was against going into the war in world war one she wow. did not she did not believe in a war so do you find that women are the main readers of cop, of your cop books yes definitely uh, I, my readership is is overwhelmingly female i mean i have some great male fans of course and and they turn out to my events and i talk to a lot of book clubs i do a lot of skype chats with book clubs and you know there's always a couple of guys but yeah i just have to sort of accept that it's it's overwhelmingly um, a story that seems to appeal to women. And I, I'd probably describe you as an author who, who gets out and about. Um, you, you do a fair bit of touring. Um, yeah. You must have some, well, if you're getting out there and also meeting book clubs as well and, and visiting bookstores, what, what's the most memorable moment you've had while you've been on a, on a book tour? Well, you know, the amazing thing that, that keeps happening is that I, I continue to meet family members of the people I'm writing about. A lot of the characters in these books are real, even the minor characters, like a, there might be a lawyer or a, you know, someone. They're, they're real people as much as possible. I'm only fictionalizing where I have to kind of fill in some gaps. So for instance, there's a sheriff in these books, Sheriff Heath. He's the one who gives Constance a job and really sticks up for her and believes in her and, um, 
it's because of him that she her whole life changes. He's really a good guy. And I had spoken on the phone to a couple of Sheriff Heath's grandsons who are now probably in their 70s or 80s. And we talked briefly, but that was about it. I was at an event in uh, Ridgewood, New Jersey, which is where these events take place. It's all in kind of the Hackensack, Patterson, New Jersey area. And afterwards, I'm signing books at the table and this guy comes up to me and he's this sort of tall, you know, 40 something man. And he says, hi, I'm Sheriff Heath's great grandson. And I just about fell over. I mean, he looks like his great grandfather. Uh, and it was just, I, it, it's a very strange feeling to, to suddenly be talking to someone who um, walks around with the DNA of my characters, right? Like actual yeah. descendants of these people who I very much know are real and I'm, I very much think of them as real people. But at other times I do sort of feel like I made them up or they belong to me. And then to have complete strangers walk up and say, that's my great grandfather, it's, it's mind boggling. It sort of shows that 1914 is not that far away. It's not that far in the distant history, even though the way you describe how there's simply very few women in positions of power, it just sounds like a thousand years away. Exactly. And what's even more amazing is that like Sheriff Heath, who's a young man when I'm writing about him in 1914, he's a guy in his 30s. His dad served in World War One. I. I mean, in the Civil War. Right. So yeah, the like the for for the people I'm writing about, the Civil War is a thing that is very much in their living memories. In fact, it even comes up a little bit as as World War One was getting underway and the army was starting to build training camps. There were these small towns across the country that had active memories of Civil War army camps and how destructive that was to their small town and they're sort of uncertain whether they want another army camp in their town and it's amazing to think that a hundred years ago people uh, were still that connected with the civil war which feels like ancient history to me so how do you be authentic when you're adding in little details do you spend a lot of time in research libraries I do, um, yeah. So I use Evernote to keep track of my research. If there's any, if there's any people listening out there who do a lot of research, Evernote is a wonderful piece of software to have kind of a virtual card catalog that holds everything. Um, so as I'm, for instance, as I'm reading, I can just snap a picture with my phone, and Evernote can scan that text and and pull it right in as a little saved uh, note. So I have thousands and thousands of notes of little historical details or just, you know, odd words that we don't quite use anymore or, or even just ways of putting a sentence together that are more true to the 1910s than how we talk now. So I'm always looking for that stuff. Um, but weirdly, I find a lot of it in fiction. I really love reading novels from the 1910s because that's where you get these odd little details of everyday life that didn't otherwise survive as an important fact of the 1910s that you know we know today. So give me some examples of novelists from that era. Well, um, I'm sitting in my office right now looking at a whole shelf of books by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who was wildly popular in her time. She wrote crime fiction and also just what today we sort of call women's fiction, or yeah, I guess women's fiction. 
<clears throat> anyway, novels about women. <laughs> um, she had plenty of male protagonists as well. Uh, and, and, and she did um, a fair amount of journalism too. She was actually went over to France in World War I for, I think, the Saturday Evening Post. So she was a very popular writer of the time, and I love her books. They're very readable and fun, but they are packed with those kind of details. So for instance, at one point, she has a character whose curling iron catches on fire in her bedroom. And you don't think of there being curling irons 100 years ago, but they were, and they were powered with gas. So, that okay, must have been a, a fire waiting to happen. Exactly. They, they caught on fire all the time. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I have to use this. So it's all that kind of little stuff that I just love being able to pull out of novels like that. But, you know, also, I mean, Edith Wharton is a great writer to read from the 1910s. And yeah. so is uh, Willa Cather is terrific. But I will also just read any any out of print novel that no one's ever heard of, you know, mm -hmm. um, because often those are just those are just packed with details of everyday life. I guess the little things would be you walk down the road and there are cars and horses probably in equal numbers on the road. Yes, that was a very interesting thing. And this is another uh, interesting comparison to right now because uh, disruptive technology was a very big deal. You know, if you think about how cities are sort of unprepared right now to deal with things like Uber or Airbnb, well, 100 years ago, cars just appeared in the marketplace before cities and counties had a chance to build roads that could accommodate them or to figure out parking lots. Um, so, and that was a big thing. I mean, counties had to have meetings and say, are we gonna repave all the roads to accommodate cars or just a few? Are cars even a thing that are really gonna stick around? Um, so that, you know, that was a big deal. And then very quickly, of course, cars took over and then there was suddenly a surplus of horses and dealing with excess horses became a problem. And so you think about, you know, you think about the way we're having to scramble to adapt to technological change. Well, that's what they were doing also 100 years ago. Indeed. Um, so I just want to say that I, I gave a copy of Wicked Plants, your mm -hmm. book on poisonous botanicals to my mum. So she's uh -huh. over in the UK. She's a, a real devoted gardener and still has an allotment in her 80s. And she really enjoyed it. So I'm wondering, do people still ask you about your nonfiction books? Oh, all the time. I, yeah, especially Wicked Plants and Drunken Botanist. Those two have really struck a chord. So everyone seems to either want uh, to make a drink or to poison somebody. <laughs> one of those two. Um, yeah, I, in fact, I'm, I'm going on the road next week, and one of them is a big uh, gardening retreat, a three-day event where I'm going to be talking about both of those books over the course of three days. Excellent. Yes, they they live on, and I'm glad that one of them found its way overseas to your mom. That's great. Indeed. So did you have a civilian career before you became a writer? I did, yes. I have a master's degree in urban planning, and I worked throughout my 20s and into my 30s. I worked full-time until my third book came out. And I worked for nonprofits doing um, grant writing and overseeing program 
managing programs for nonprofits and making sure they were following all the rules and passing their audits and, and that kind of work. For AIDS organizations and drug treatment centers for women and children, battered women shelter, rape crisis center, and then um, a housing a housing organization that did affordable housing. Okay. So yeah, so that that's what I did. To, was that useful for your writing career? <laughs> you know, I, not in any particular way that I've ever been able to think of, but um, it's what I did for a living, and I'm glad I did. I actually think sometimes that if you're a, a writer or a creative person and you think, well, I guess the way I'll make a living is I'll go do some creative adjacent job, you know, <laughs> like I want to be in the theater, but maybe I'll just be a secretary for a theater nonprofit or something like that. In some ways, I think maybe that's kind of frustrating because you're not really doing the creative work. Other people are, but you're the one getting their coffee and whatever. So, okay. uh, so no, I had a job that really had nothing to do with writing, but was very interesting to me and I was good at it. And I helped uh, a lot of poor people have places to live. And, you know, I, I did good in the world, like good things happened for disadvantaged people because okay. I was there doing that job. So yeah, that was good. You're still doing good in the world. You don't <laughs> have to worry so. about that. <laughs> if we Feels all do a little bit of good, it's okay. <laughs> Um, so the future, are you planning to keep writing books about Constance Cop and her sisters? I am. I've just signed a contract that gets me through number seven. Ooh. So, yeah, so number four has just come out. I've just finished with number five, and I'm about to start writing number six. So, yeah, and then there's more to come after that. I, getting me through book seven really gets me into the 1920s barely and they did quite a lot in the 1920s that i want to write about so i hope if people keep reading them i'll get to keep writing them and i do want to tell more of their story yeah i would think the 1920s could be quite different art deco flappers music right. the vote yeah there's lots of ways you could go there lots of lots of lots of things happened in the 20s yeah yeah all right, so finally, one last question. I try to ask this often, uh, but what book are you reading now? The book I'm, it's so funny. We were talking about Mary Roberts Reinhardt a minute ago, and I actually was just over at Powell's yesterday, and I picked up a Mary Roberts Reinhardt novel called The Window at the White Cat. And it's one of those little Dell paperbacks, you know, one of those tiny little dime store novels. It's priced at 40 cents on the cover. Um, but it's one that I've never heard of. Um, what was the title? The Window at the White Cat. The Window at the White Cat. It has this funny picture of a, of a house that looks a little bit like a cat because it has a peaked roof at either end, um, like a cat's ears. But she wrote it in, the, in 1910, so it's good. It's right there in my era. So, uh, yeah, I just bought that at Powell's yesterday, and so it's the very top thing on my stack to read. Excellent. Okay, so uh, that's all we have time for this week. A real huge thank you to Amy Stewart for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Oh, thank you. And Amy's new novel... Miss Cop Won't Quit is published in September, on September 11th, I think. Uh, we thoroughly recommend it. I'm reading at the moment. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis from Ape Books, and we'll see you next time.